APM reports this is Campaign 68. The conservative shift in American politics was one of the big political legacies of 1968. A second legacy was an intensive use of television to win the White House. TV viewership boomed in the 1960s. To capture that audience, Richard Nixon ran the most sophisticated television campaign yet seen in America. Our narrator is Stephen Smith. Never has so much power been used so ineffectively as in Vietnam. If after all of this time and all... In recent years, crime in this country has grown nine times as fast as population. I see the face of a child. What his color is, what his ancestry is, doesn't matter. America is in trouble today, not because her people have failed, but because her leaders have failed. Nixon had top-flight ad men and television producers in his campaign. They figured out the best way to package him for the public. The team agreed that Nixon came off best in more informal settings, so they staged town hall meetings where the candidate took questions from voters. Mr. Nixon, does law and order now take on a new meaning since black Americans are making a demand for equality while for years the Ku Klux White citizen councils and other organized bigoted groups have slaughtered, murdered, maimed, and burned the churches and edifices of the black people all over this nation, and especially in the South. Some of the questions were challenging, but this man and the rest of the audience were handpicked for the event. This interchange allowed Nixon to defend his views on crime against charges of racism. Mr. Hudgens, you put your finger on a very troublesome question for every American white American, black American. Uh, And let me be quite direct in the answer. I don't go along with people that say that law and order is a code word for racism. I don't go along with that because uh, my studies of this situation indicate that black Americans have as just as great a stake in a law and order society as white Americans. It was one way of trying to break away from having to do everything through the media screen. Ray Price was a speechwriter for Nixon in 1968. Nixon was very good one-on-one. He was very good with a group of people. Uh, he was at home. He was at ease in this. He liked answering questions. He'd been doing it all his life. He, you know, he, he was good at it. Law and order is in the interest of all Americans. Let's just make sure that our laws deserve respect. Then they will be respected by all Americans. What has Richard Nixon ever done for you? What has Richard Nixon ever done for me? Uh, Medicare. No, that was Humphrey's idea. But Nixon, Nixon. While Nixon and Wallace capitalized on the law and order anxieties that voters had, Democrat Hubert Humphrey's advertising encouraged voter anxiety over Nixon and Wallace themselves. Mr. Wallace talks about law and order. But under the Wallace administration, Alabama had the highest murder rate in the country. Mr. Nixon wants to offer security to older citizens, but Mr. Nixon opposes Medicare. Television advertising was just part of the media battle in 1968. Television's massive popularity was accompanied by the growing power of TV news to shape public opinion, so political campaigns had to play well on the network news. And that's where Nixon excelled. The sharpest contrast between the Humphrey and Nixon campaigns is to be found in terms of organization. Nixon's campaign has it, Humphrey's doesn't. Or if it does, every effort is being made to camouflage it. Schedules on the Humphrey campaign bear a certain resemblance to the Easter Bunny. 
no one over the age of consent has any business believing in either one. Now, we may not be as well organized as the Nixon machine, but I guarantee you we have more fun and we know what's going on. Humphrey did what a politician traditionally did when they were behind. He campaigned his heart out. He campaigned like a maniac. Historian Rick Perlstein. He did 10, 12, 15 events a day. Nixon had another strategy. He only gave one or two events a day. He realized that most of the voters would only see him on TV, that he didn't have to bust his butt going from rally to rally to rally. So what he would do is he would schedule one or two rallies, and lo and behold, on the evening news every night, you would see the one gaffe that Hubert Humphrey had made on his 10 or 12 or 15 rallies during the day, and you would see the perfectly rehearsed, perfectly fresh talking points of the Nixon campaign. As the presidential contest rolled into the final month, prospects for peace in Vietnam seemed to be improving. This helped Humphrey, and his campaign picked up a lot of steam once he finally made a speech describing his own plan for the war. By the end of October, he and Nixon were running neck and neck. And just five days before the election, President Johnson announced a halt to the bombing of North Vietnam. At a televised rally that night, Nixon said that he would stick to the high road and stay neutral about Johnson's peace initiatives. I will only say what I have said previously, that I trust that this action may bring some progress in those talks. And I will say further, my friends, that as a presidential candidate and my vice presidential running mate joins me in this, neither he nor I will say anything that might destroy the chance to have peace. We want peace about politics in America. But while Nixon kept quiet publicly about the peace process, documents show he was secretly using back channels to sabotage Johnson's deal. Through a well-placed representative, Nixon told America's South Vietnamese allies that if they held out for peace until after the election, Nixon would get them a better deal than Lyndon Johnson. It may have been a dirty ploy to win the election, but historian Rick Perlstein says Nixon believed it was fair play. He thought that the fact that Lyndon Johnson had initiated this bombing halt was an attempt to steal the 68 election for Hubert Humphrey. He always thought he was playing defense. Good evening, everyone. We may be here for a very long night tonight. The last poll showed that this was going to be a very close election. November 5th, 1968, Election Day. Function is the election. It appears that Americans turned out perhaps in record numbers. It was a long night. A presidential race that in September looked nearly impossible for Humphrey ended up being remarkably close. Less than 1% of the vote made the difference. The next morning, Humphrey spoke to supporters in Minneapolis. I'm sure you know that I have already called uh, uh, Mr. Nixon, expressed to him our congratulations. And I've sent the following telegram just a few moments ago to Mr. Nixon. Nixon was in New York. Having lost a close one eight years ago and having won a close one this year, I can say this. Winning's a lot more fun. (laughs) As for third-party candidate George Wallace, his popularity fell late in the campaign when voters began to view him as too polarizing and unpredictable. Still, Wallace won 13.5% of the popular vote and took five states in the Deep South. 
Richard Billhouse Nixon do solemnly swear that you will faithfully execute the office. That I will faithfully execute. Richard Nixon took the oath of office in January 1969. Soon after, his campaign staffers began planning for his reelection. Nixon's strategists set out to focus on issues that divided Democrats, not issues to unite Republicans. Historian Dan Carter says Nixon also used his Southern strategy to win a second term. Nixon realizes that the basis for not only his reelection but also a Republican majority rests upon making certain that what has traditionally been the Democratic South becomes the Republican South. And although there certainly are other issues involved, race is going to be the wedge that is going to make that switch possible. Historian Rick Perlstein says that political techniques now taken for granted in American presidential campaigns took hold in 1968, like polarizing wedge issues and the power of single interest groups. The idea was you intentionally find fault lines that get Americans angry at each other, hating each other, and that your side of the divide will be bigger, and then you win. Perlstein calls this the awful legacy of 1968, an unrelenting series of culture wars. It made dividing instead of uniting basically the tactical goal. So we have two sets of Americans who believe that the other side is courting civilizational chaos. Looking back at 1968, it's obvious that major changes were taking place in American politics. Democrats had dominated the government since the 1930s, but the traditional alliances that backed old-style liberals like Eugene McCarthy, Robert Kennedy, and Hubert Humphrey fell apart. Millions of Democrats abandoned the party. Campaign tactics were also forever changed. The high-gloss media packaging of candidates became standard fare. And the politics of resentment, practiced crudely by George Wallace, was polished and refined by more sophisticated candidates over the rest of the 20th century. Fifty years later, the dark art of political division is now pursued in America with a precision and a ferocity hardly dreamed of in 1968. This is Campaign 68 from APM Reports. Our next four chapters will feature conversations with scholars and journalists who've thought deeply about the political and social upheavals that came to a head in 1968 and how they continue to affect who we are today. First up will be historian Peniel Joseph. He talks about the impact of the Black Power movement and Martin Luther King Jr. on the 68 campaign. Joseph also describes what the struggle for equality looks like today. King makes this argument that civil rights activism is part of all of Americans' um, patriotic duty. He links civil rights to the American Revolution, to the Constitution, to the Declaration of Independence. What Trump has been able to do is at least challenge the post-civil rights consensus that racial justice is a principle and core part of American democracy. Campaign 68 was produced by Stephen Smith and me, Kate Ellis. It was edited by Emily Hamford and Catherine Winter. The production team includes Tracy Mumford, Ellen Gettler, Ocean Kalen, Suzanne Pico, Nancy Rosenbaum, Ariel Kitsch, Liz Lyon, and Taylor Vraney. Mixing by Craig Thorson. Original music by Johnny Vince Evans. 
Check out our website where you can find a variety of photographs, essays, and historical documents that illuminate the 1968 campaign. Visit us at apmreports.org slash 68. And if you like this podcast, help spread the word by leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Campaign 68 is a production of American Public Media. Support for this program comes from the Olseth Family Foundation, working to improve community through support of the arts, education, the environment, and the underserved.